I want to start with a question for you that I uh, gave a little introduction or prelude to in my announcements this evening. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Now, kids, I hope you're listening because this is an important question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Now, our safest answer would be to say, God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you were to answer that way, you would be 100% true. God raised Jesus from the dead. And some excitement I see from some of our children, they may have already guessed that one, and they are celebrating their accurate answer. God raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Or listen to Acts 3.15. These are, this is Peter preaching in the early days of the church. He says to them that the, yet you have killed the prince of life, whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. So if you were to say God raised Jesus from the dead, you'd be on solid ground. Could we get any more specific? Who raised Jesus from the dead? One answer might come to mind for you. Well, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. And if you said that, you are correct. Listen to Galatians 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So he's an apostle by God the Father who raised him from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father. So God has raised Jesus from the dead. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Can we get any more specific than that? Can we get any other persons of the Godhead who raised Jesus from the dead. Perhaps you are saying, Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. God, the Son, raised Jesus from the dead. And if you were to answer that, you're doing great. That is absolutely correct. Listen to what Jesus says in John 10. In verse 17, he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. John chapter 2, Jesus answered and said unto them, when they asked him, what sign are you giving? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. I will raise it up, Jesus said. So if you guessed God raised Jesus from the dead, you're correct. If you guessed the Father raised Jesus from the dead, you're correct. If you guessed the Son raised Jesus from the dead, you are correct. And you know where I'm going. Could we say that the Spirit of God 
raised Jesus from the dead. If you guessed the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, you would be correct. Listen to 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he, Christ, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Quickened, brought to life, resurrected by the Spirit. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. Listen to Romans 3 or excuse me, 1, verses 3 to 4. Paul is speaking of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The spirit of holiness who declared him to be the son of God. Now, this is one of those questions you love, don't you? There are no wrong answers when it comes to the Trinity. God raised Jesus from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Son raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. As John Chrysostom, who my father used to like to quote and refer to, said, For it cannot be but that where the Spirit is, there Christ is also. For wheresoever one person of the Trinity is, there the whole Trinity is. Is present. And so, yes, indeed, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all three were involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, you say, where are you going with this? Because one passage that I did not quote and yet continues to shed light on exactly the first question is in Romans chapter 8. Will you look with me in verse number 11 of Romans chapter 8? Paul says in verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead, so who raised up Jesus? Him, God the Father. If the spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or resurrect, bring to life your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Notice here, he's referring to a life-giving spirit that at the direction of God raised up Jesus from the dead. And there is a promise to you and to me that if that same resurrecting spirit dwells in you, you can be assured that your mortal body will be brought to life by the very same spirit. The title of the message this evening is The Resurrecting Spirit. The Resurrecting Spirit. And let's understand together how this life-giving spirit not only gives you the promise of your future resurrection, but places on you an obligation to live in the light of his power, live under his authority as we deal even today with our mortal bodies. Let's start, first of all, by understanding the principle of life that Romans chapter 8 is bringing out 
for us. Again, if we are going to understand the word of God, we have to understand it in context. And Paul sometimes goes through these extended logical trains of reasoning, these extended arguments, and if we parachute right into the middle of them, we sometimes miss the point altogether and we end up interpreting it wrongly or inadequately. So let's try to understand Romans chapter 8 and what exactly is going on here. If we're going to understand Romans chapter 8, we need to understand that it is a chapter of contrasts. Paul is making an argument contrasting between several things. One thing that he is contrasting most significantly is life and death. Listen to what he says. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of, what's the next word? Life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So you have life and death, and it's going to continue to be contrasted by Paul in throughout this Chapter. Another of the contrasts that we've already seen in verse 1 is the contrast between spirit and flesh. God's Holy Spirit, the law of the spirit of life, as contrasted to the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? You might think that the flesh is the imprint of sin on your nature. It is the imprint of your self-centeredness on the way you live. You did not need to, to be taught to respond to your flesh. Your flesh is at the core of your me principle, your I principle. I desire, that's your flesh. I want, that's your flesh. I crave, that is your flesh. It is your self-centered core that is irrepressibly marked with the very law of sin. And so Paul is telling us, you have on the one hand the spirit of God that gives life and liberty, and you have the law of the flesh, your own, if you will, imprint of that sin nature on your being, that gives only bondage and death. And he's going to contrast these two things throughout these next several verses. Now notice here again, the person that he is speaking of, <coughs> excuse me, is the spirit, and he calls it the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's point here in Romans 8, is to tell you that this spirit is indwelling you if you are a Christian. He says, notice verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He says in verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, you are not in your carnal nature, but in the spirit if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now the idea here is if is really a since. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God does dwell in you. So you could read this since the Spirit of God 
dwells in you. And he goes on to say in verse 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the Spirit of God indwells you. The Spirit of God possesses you. You are possessed of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Now have you thought of this in places where Scripture says that the Spirit of God seals you? Have you ever thought of what a seal says? Yes, perhaps you thought, well, if you are sealed, if a seal is placed to something, it is a seal of authenticity. This is authentic, and you are correct. But have you considered that a seal also marks ownership? Possession? When you put a government seal on something, you may be saying this is the government's. This is theirs. It has been sealed with the stamp of the United States government. It is possessed. It is owned. And so think about it. When God says that you are sealed by the spirit of promise, not only is God marking you out as authentic, in a sense, authentically his, if you have the spirit, you are his. Also, he is marking you out as his possession. He is saying, this one's mine. I've sealed them as mine with the spirit. So if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Flip it around. If anyone does have the spirit of Christ, he is his. Now go on to verse number 10. We're really going to focus on verses 9 through 13 here. And if Christ be in you, there's that principle of the indwelling Christ, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Look at that contrast. Spirit and, in this case, body. We'll get to that in just a minute. And life and death. The body is dead because of sin. Now let's pause. What does he mean by that? The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice the paradox here. The paradox is that your body is dead. You say, what do you mean by that? I think what Paul means by that is your body is already controlled by the principle of death. Now people say, I'm getting old. Well, really what you're doing, I hate to say it, is you're dying. That's what you're doing. Every single one of us are dying. The principle of death controls our life. That principle happens every time I rub my hands like this on the stage uh, over the pulpit. If you were to take a magnifying glass, every time I do that, you would see dead sin skin cells being shed and going down all over the pulpit. Those, that's the principle of death. Every time we lose a hair, that hair follicle is, that hair, if you will, has experienced the principle of death. And for some of us, there's no follicle, there's no hair replacing it in that follicle. There truly is death. Your body is dying. Your muscles, as you age, are losing muscle fiber that will never be replaced. Your bones are losing density that will never be restored. You are losing explosion and strength and speed and agility that you will never again regain. You 
are dying. Why? Because the body is dead because of sin. You say, why am I dying? Well, we go back to the very beginning. For as in Adam, all die. Remember, this idea, this condemnation of death has passed upon all men, Paul says. Why? For all have sinned. Because of sin, we are in a dying state. Now, what is Paul suggesting here? Remember what Paul said in verse 1 of this chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Now imagine someone objecting to Paul. Paul, hold on. If you said I have no condemnation in me, then how come I'm dying? If I truly have no condemnation, if I'm in Christ Jesus, square that with my death. So Paul makes a concession. He says you are dying. Your body is dead because of sin. But, he says, I'm going to bring out the true paradox. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. His righteousness is imputed to you in your faith in him, and the spirit of God indwells you and quickens your human spirit. The spirit that can have a relationship with God. Truly, we can say that your spirit is alive because of righteousness, because it has been quickened by his spirit. And your spirit and his spirit, if you will, are joined together. You are alive. I had an example of this recently, both here at the church and in our neighborhood. The neighbors on either side of me have large ash trees that have been destroyed by the emerald ash borer. The people on our south, our neighbors, have a large, beautiful ash tree, a wonderful shade tree, and they have had people come and tell them, it's, it's got to have to come down. It's not going to make it. And they have just spent perhaps thousands of dollars to get this tree cut down. Just recently, our neighbor on the north side, an ash tree in their, house, in their yard, emerald ash borer, it's not going to make it. You noticed why is our tree missing out on Franklin Avenue? Because it has emerald ash borer, and it needed to come down. Emerald ash borer, what is it? It's a beetle. It goes in under the bark. It lays eggs. What does the larva do? The larva feeds on the bark. It rots the tree from the inside out. And you look at that tree, and you say, I don't see any problem with it. And someone who knows trees comes and says, that tree's dead. That tree's a goner. It needs to be cut down. You said it still looks alive to me. Yeah, it's dying. It's condemned. It's not going to make it. And do you know you and I are the exact same way? You and I have been infested by the emerald ash borer of sin. And no matter how alive our body looks on the outside, no matter how much control we seem to have over our circumstances, we are dying because of sin. Our body is dead because of sin. But Paul says, what you don't understand is there is another principle at work inside you, the principle of the spirit of life that is based not on your righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
You see, friends, it's a wonderfully healthy thing, I'm convinced, to be very aware that we are dying. We have a tendency to hold very tightly to the things of this earth as if we have control over them, as if they are ours to possess, as if we can lay hold on them and cling to them. And God says, what are you talking about? You're dying. You're like an ash tree that has emerald ash borer in it. And just because you don't see the decay now, that decay nonetheless is a principle at work in your life. Stop clinging to what's dying and start holding on to and celebrating what is living. The spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's the principle of life. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has moved in. And there's paradoxes in place. You are dying. Your body is dying. But the spirit of life based on the righteousness of Christ has combined with your human spirit to give life. And this means, secondly, that there's a promise of life. Look with me at verse 11, will you? But if the spirit of him, that's the life-giving spirit, that raised up Jesus from the dead, this resurrecting spirit, dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Do you see the analogy that he's making? God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' mortal body died. It experienced this principle of decay. God, by his spirit, raised up Jesus from the dead. And you have the exact same life-giving spirit in you. The same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead. Like that. Therefore, Paul lodged reasons. I don't care whether your ash tree is infested with emerald ash borer and everyone can look at it and say, that's dead or it's in the process of dying. Paul says, if underneath your bark, again, if you'll pardon the analogy, if at the core of your being there is the spirit of life, you can be assured that God is going to do the same thing to you that he did to Jesus Christ. The Spirit is going to quicken, bring to life your mortal body. You will be resurrected. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Jesus is the first fruits of them who sleep. The first fruits was the first sign of harvest that came in. It was the first symbol that the harvest would be coming in well. So the first fruit was the proof that more was to come. Jesus barged through the doors of death. He barged through the doors of hell. The gates of hell were opened wide. And by hell I mean Sheol, if you will, in the biblical sense. The, the doors of the grave. Jesus burst through them as a conqueror, and those doors have swung open forever. They will never be shut entirely again. And as Jesus emerged victorious from the grave, by the power of the resurrecting spirit, the life-giving spirit who brought Jesus to life again like that, God says, just like that again, you will be brought to life. You will experience the same life-giving 
Spirit. Friends, what a joy to know that our loved ones in Christ who have departed will experience the same life-giving spirit that Jesus himself experienced. Same spirit, same kind of resurrection, same kind of life-giving power. But the promise is that you will receive it too if you're in Christ. We need not fear death. We need not fear the grave because in Christ we can be assured that if the life-giving spirit is indwelling and possessing us, that same life-giving spirit will resurrect us just like Jesus Christ. Are you walking in that assurance this evening? Do you have that complete confidence that the moment your mortal body completes its decaying and dying process, your heartbeat stops, your brain waves cease, that you will be operating under the certainty that that body will not decay finally. It will be brought to life by his spirit, his resurrecting spirit. Someone said, and I'm paraphrasing, but Satan won't ultimately win anything. He can't even claim your body that he has marred by sin. God says, "Uh uh-uh, that's my body too. Remember what Paul says? You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God says, Satan, I'm not letting you get the body either. Your body, that body will be quickened by the resurrecting spirit. So notice there's a principle of life, the spirit of life in Jesus Christ who indwells you, who possesses you, and who gives you this principle of life within you. There's the promise of life that even though your body is dying and one day indeed will die, the resurrecting spirit that brought Jesus back to life will one day bring back to life your dead body as well. But then notice thirdly what I'm going to call the participation of life. The participation of life. Look with me at verse 12. What is the first word of verse 12? Say it out. Shout it out. What's the first word of verse 12? Therefore. Therefore. Now as it's been said, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, ask what the therefore is there for. Why is the therefore there? Therefore, Paul says, I'm summing up the argument. I'm summing up my point. Therefore, what? Brethren, we are debtors. Why is the therefore there? What's it there for? Therefore, we are debtors. But he says, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. What's he saying? Why are you a debtor? What is a debtor? A debtor is someone who receives something that is not his, that he has not paid for, who receives something from someone else's generosity and now has an obligation toward the person from whom he received it. And friend, what did you receive? What did you receive? 
life. You didn't just receive life. You received the spirit of life. You received the resurrecting spirit. You received the life-giving spirit who brought the very nature of Jesus Christ to your being, who brought the righteousness of Christ to your being, who brought the utter and complete assurance that your mortal body will be resurrected and brought to life one day. And Paul says the way to think about this is you're a debtor. You have an obligation. And what does he say your obligation is in light of the resurrecting spirit? He says not to the flesh. It's not to the flesh. You haven't received anything from the flesh but death to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. What's your obligation? Put to death the deeds of your body. How do you respond to having the resurrecting Spirit indwelling you? Go to war. Go to war. Against what? That which causes death in you. Doesn't that make sense? What is the life-giving spirit that is in you going to do on your behalf? He's going to go to war. Against what? Against the principle of death. Against your flesh that only brings death. Against your sin that has brought you into death in the first place. Against the very nature of sin that inhabits or that desires to control your mortal body. Go to war. That's your obligation. That's your duty. And look at the glorious point that he's been making all along. If the spirit of Christ is in you, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The resurrecting spirit is not just the one who will raise you to to eternal life one day, your mortal body The resurrecting spirit is the life-giving power to defeat sin in your life right now. And that's your obligation, and it's my obligation to go to war and fight sin in my mortal body. Now you say, what does that really mean for me? And I just want to leave you with one thought before we close. What would it take, what kind of power would it take for a human being to be immediately resurrected from full death? Have you seen someone die? Have you experienced, have you seen death when it is squarely in front of you? It is sobering. It is as if the light goes off. It is as if The life, you can almost see the life leave the body and suddenly there's a body that has no life. It's dead. What would it take for that dead body to immediately come back to life? What kind of power would be required? Paul says, you have that same power in you. You you possess that power. The person of that power who raised Jesus from the dead is now operating in your life. 
Why do you think Paul says in Ephesians 1 that his, he's praying to the Father of glory? He prays that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would know his power, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe that he wrought in Christ, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul says, God, would you give them an understanding of how much power they have, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that much power. What do you think Paul meant in Philippians chapter 3? when he was crying out to God as the expression of his heart, he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What do you think he meant when I said, I want to know the power of his resurrection? He was saying, I want to know a little bit more of that life-giving spirit power, the same power that resurrected Christ from the dead. Friend, is that your heart cry tonight? Resurrecting spirit. I want to know the power that raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. I want to know it. Resurrecting spirit. I've got some besetting sin in my life. But if you were able to raise Jesus from the dead, you're able to bring life where there's death in this area of my life. Resurrecting spirit where there is an area of corruption and fleshliness in my life, I want to know your power to have the, that resurrecting spirit come and give life to my experience too, that I may know the power of his resurrection. You can, because you have the same spirit of life in you that that raised up Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God did. The Father did. The Son did. But the Spirit did too. And that same Spirit who gives the nature of Jesus Christ has indwelt you if you are one of his and he offers that same kind of miraculous power today and this week to live the Christian life that God wants you to live. May you and I know that same life-giving power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this resurrecting spirit. Thank you that we have the availability of power that beyond which we could dream we have the availability of resurrecting power to attack our sin. May we see afresh tonight, Father, that we are at war, that the obligation of possessing the Spirit is to be a debtor to live after the Spirit and to go to war against that which would cause death. And so I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to an awareness of what we have in Christ and to a sensitivity to the Spirit to live after his leading. Let's pause for a moment with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I need to ask, first of all, have you received the resurrecting Spirit?
Are you his? And secondly, where are you hungry to see his power at work in your life? Where would you cry out to him tonight to say, I need your resurrecting power in a specific place in my experience? Would we just humble ourselves to cry out to him tonight to claim that power for ourselves and to commit to go to war with courage, with diligence, with humility to whatever areas of life we see death having control. Let's pause for a few minutes and ask God by his resurrecting spirit to reveal himself to us.